Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. We have got a doozy for you tonight. Uh, Dr. Travis Steffens is going to join us. He's a, a leading primatologist focused on lemurs in Madagascar. But before we get too far, I'd like to thank our sponsors who make this podcast possible. Merrill, Sunto, Farm to Feet, Stoked Oats, Smith Optics, Canada Satellite, and Earthcast. I'm your host, Simon Donato, and with me is my lovely co-host, Chanel Mayer. All right, Chanel. Travis is a longtime friend of mine. He's a fellow of the Explorers Club as well, and we've traveled to Madagascar. That's his turf uh, several years ago for an expedition where we were looking um, in a very remote part of the country for lemurs, amongst other things, and we got a lot more than we bargained for. I think I've told you about that trip before, Chanel. Yes, you have. I'm looking forward to hearing his details as well. It may contradict my heroic moments, but I guess we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's a great guy. Um, I mean, he's a, he's a primatologist. He's, he's an expert on lemurs. He spent years upon years in Madagascar. I really think you're going to like this guy, Chanel. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear about his charitable work too. He's founder of Planet Madagascar which focuses on conservation and environmental protection there. So let's bring him on. I can't wait to start talking to him. So without any further ado, Travis, welcome to uh, the Adventure Science Podcast. It's great to have you joining Chanel and I tonight. Uh, really excited to chat and catch up. There's a lot of exciting things that I know have happened uh, personally and professionally for you lately. How are you doing? Doing great. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So Travis, um, you know, to, we, with the Adventure Science Podcast, we talk about adventure, science, and exploration. You certainly check all those boxes. Um, people may know you uh, as uh, a lemur champion, uh, anthropologist, cycle touring leader. I mean, you've done so much. Uh, as we go on, I'm definitely going to get into some of the work that you and I have done together, but... When we start these podcasts, I really like to know what makes people tick, what makes them want to be an adventurer or an explorer. How did you get started in your early years? Uh, you know, it was, it was um, I grew up in, in Calgary in the foothills of the Rockies. Um, so I had adventure in my backyard in a sense. Um, but I to get into the specific thing I do, you know, studying lemurs and going out into places that have primates, it goes back to when I was eight years old. And I was sitting in a tree with my best friend, and I wanted to be a monkey. You know, that's what I decided I wanted to be when I grew up. Now, he was smarter and a little older than me, and so he said, that's impossible. So I said, well, fine, I'm going <laughs> to study monkeys. I was like, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to go study monkeys then. And he, I think he wanted to own a skateboard shop because we like skateboarding. A little more practical. Um, yeah, you know, and it ended up he ended up he has his own handmade furniture shop called uh, Rustic Woodworks in uh, in uh, um, Co uh, Cochrane, I think, or somewhere. Yeah, just outside of Calgary. Awesome. And uh, so he uh, he kind of went and did his thing, but I I stuck to it. I really wanted to I really wanted to go to places that I couldn't imagine because that's where monkeys seem like such a foreign thing. Um, and so from that moment on, even from a young age, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I was just trying to figure out how to do it. And did you did you tailor your education to go after it? Did you ever deviate? Um, how did you end up where you are now with a doctorate in, uh, you know, anthropology? 
Yeah, so it was. Um, I didn't know how you did school because I, I'm none of my family had really graduated high school. I was the first to to sort of traditionally graduate high school and go to university. And back then there wasn't the internet like it was now, so I just looked at a book and uh, and that was your course calendar. And I remember those I, days. Yeah, you remember that. And um, I saw a course called Primatology 200 or something like that, 201. And I was like, well, that's great. That's uh, just like what my eight-year-old self wanted to do. So I, I took this class not knowing uh, anything about anthropology, not knowing anything about really primate research. I thought you became a biologist to become a primate researcher. Yeah. Um, and so I took that course and, and yeah, met this really cool guy, Brian Keating. He's uh, been on Discovery Channel quite a bit. It's on CBC Radio a lot from Calgary. Um, and he opened my eyes to this world of anthropology through primates that that was just mind-boggling so i i entered it i actually laser beamed from that moment on after taking that course i i got a bachelor of science in primatology uh master's wow. in primatology and then a, a a phd in uh evolutionary anthropology that's awesome um uh, now i remember Making the jump, for me at least, I, I did my undergrad in anthropology and I was nervous to go out into the field. There were some students that just, they dove right in. I, I didn't have the guts to do it. What was, what was it like for you to bridge that gap, to go from the classroom and step out and kind of chase it down in the field and do something remote? And what kind of hurdles did you have to clear to be able to do that? Well, I, I was really lucky because the same Brian Keating, he was teaching this class and, and he had these pictures of injuries and 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 shafakas and and um, uh, td monkeys in in south america and d different things and i wanted i just wanted to see these things and he was actually leading a tour this wasn't field work um and i i i couldn't pay it was like seven thousand bucks i couldn't pay for it so i i asked him how he got to where he was from my age i was 17 at the time so that one day I could go to those places because I was excited. I, I was itching to to just go into the field and do something. He said if I if I gave him 50 bucks and I promised that one day I'd pay off the trip, he'd take me and I'd, I could go with him on one of these trips. So that was my sort of entry into it. So I gave him, I gave him 50 bucks and then I, I did. I paid it off. I paid the, the whole thing. I borrowed two grand from my mom and paid 5700 myself. And uh, – and went to Guyana. So I, I kind of got lucky. I was introduced with sort of like a mentor and a guide. So it took away a lot of the, the initial fear. Um, and I got to go somewhere remote, like parts of Guyana that we went, people just didn't go then. Um, this would have been in 98, 99. Hell, people uh, don't was, go now to Guyana. I mean, it's still 80% of it's still native forests down there. It's incredible. Yeah, it was uh, it was ninety percent when I went, but uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I got into it, and then I knew early that I was I was good in the field because I could handle bugs and I could handle um, the heat, and I saw the beauty of these places that other people didn't see, and and so I, that's how I I was more successful in the field. I'm maybe not the smartest person, but I know how to use a machete. Um, <laughs> And so that was that was lucky for me to have that introduction so young because most people wouldn't have. I was 18 when I went there. Wow. That's I mean, that's so inspiring all you've accomplished. And I'm always amazed at people who can retain their sense of self and accomplish dreams that they've had since they were really young. I think that's amazing. Um, 
and you've done so much, but many people know you best as the director of Planet Madagascar. And I wanted to know how that came about and what is it? What do you guys do? Um, yeah, the Planet Madagascar is the sort of the next phase post my research. It was, um, it was kind of a sad story. I was living in a, a semi-remote part of Madagascar. We were doing research there and I um, became involved with one of the communities who, who helped supply us with uh, research assistance and, and workers and stuff. Uh, the project needed water and, and we had about 30 staff, um, all, 35 staff altogether. And, um, and one day I was in the communities after having spent some time there and there's a young girl who, uh, who is sick and she looked like she might not make it. And the community was interested in, you know, doing anything it could to help this girl. And they asked me if I could help, you know, being a Westerner, um, they just assumed I'd have money in medicine that could take care of her. And I didn't because I, I'm not a doctor and, and, you know, I, I wasn't much I could do, you know, there, this wasn't the first person in that community that had died when I was there, but it was, she was the youngest. And after she passed away the next day and I was really frustrated by, you know, having this mission to do research that cost a lot of money and yet there's people in the community dying next door. So I decided to create an organization where we could leverage the interest in protecting lemurs to help um, communities achieve their potential and um, and work together to, to protect lemurs because it's in everybody's interest because they need the forests that the lemurs rely on as well. So that's kind of where it came from and uh, and sort of where it's going to go. So we do a lot of conservation projects, uh, fire management projects. We just got some funding for some reforestation projects. Um, but I just met with someone today to help us start our women's uh, health and maternal health program that we're looking to launch uh, later this year or next year. It's quite broad spectrum. But uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about lemurs and the the fact that Madagascar, aside from uh, Richard Branson's island and a few zoos, is the only spot on the planet where lemurs exist, and the pressure, the incredible pressure that they're facing for survival. I mean, you took me over there years ago to uh, to share this region with me as we explored the Singi and introduced me to my first lemurs. But, you know, really going in, I, I knew nothing about them. So I'd love if you could just share a little bit about what makes lemurs tick. What are the pressures? We'll talk about the extinctions that have happened as well. And, you know, with these fires uh, management programs and things like that, how are you in particular, as well as some of the others who are working in the field, um, making some change and, and slowing uh, their demise? Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's, um, lemurs are incredible. You have this island that's the size of, of Texas or France or Alberta, depending on what part of the world you're in. And it split off from Africa about 80 or so million years ago. And there were no primates on the island when it split. And then somewhere 30 million years later, some primate managed to get there, potentially by rafting or something. We don't know. Um, they don't make rafts, you know. <laughs> it would have floated <laughs> over on some vegetation. little sailboat. It was actually a, a horrible day for that animal, really. Horrible week. <laughs> this happened, you know, this is like um, uh, a big storm would have, would have put out a whole bunch of vegetation, maybe the size of a small city. And, um, and this, the single pair of, of uh, species, the single species pair of individuals or something like that would have landed and they got to Madagascar and the country's diverse. You know, there's mountains and there's coastline and there's uh, highlands and uh, plateaus and, and uh, rainforest and dry forest, etc. So this was an area where 
a primate who didn't have any competitors could all of a sudden explode into all these different varieties. So we have now well over 100 um, species of lemurs in Madagascar. Um, and being on an island, they, they're susceptible because there's nowhere for them to go when, when their habitat's destroyed. And so they've, they've got these little niches that they've filled. There's even a, a, a lemur that fills the niche of a woodpecker. This was the I.I. You and I found some evidence of on that uh, ill-fated trek we did that one day. That's right. <laughs> and they, they're elusive and they're crazy and there's this insane animal that, that's a primate that fills the niche of a woodpecker, which is just incredible. Um, and how does and it do that? So like a, like a woodpecker looking for grub in a tree, it, t- it taps on the tree instead of with a beak, it does it with its finger. Um, it has these really um, satellite dish-like ears that, that listen in. And when it hears a, a, a grub in one of the sort of channels underneath the bark, it will drill with these uh, rodent-like teeth into wow. it and the, use that weird finger to, to sort of scoop it out. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just outrageous. And of course, it's only found in Madagascar, as all lemurs are. That is so uh, cool. Yeah, they're already, they're called eye eyes, um, and they're probably the spookiest looking primate as well. Um, but yeah, so they have this this these niches that they filled, and as those are, are being impacted by habitat loss, um, they're disappearing. And we've lost, I can't remember the exact number now in in, in the last you know say two thousand years, but we lost a, a probably about a dozen different species, including. Um, the giant lemur, a gorilla-sized lemur that used to, you know, roam the plains of Madagascar. So, how many are there currently? How many different species? Like, what's the ratio of what was originally there, um, and how many are left? Yeah, so we got. I think there's about a hundred. I think they just discovered another one just a few weeks ago. So about 104, 105 now, um, and probably I think it was 12 to 16 other species potentially genera that were that were gone i'd have to check i can't remember um how many we've lost uh, but an, a lot so you know that's you know, just probably about 15 percent but and the in, thing in typical fashion the, the largest ones go first exactly and the thing that makes it crazy is that lemurs are the most endangered animal group so of those 104 or whatever species 94 percent are threatened with extinction uh today that's um, just incredible and there's no other group of animals that's that threatened. Um, and, and so, what are, yeah. what are the big causes? It's a good question. The, the The main cause is simply just habitat loss. So the habitat's being converted from forest into something else. Often it's they're converted into pasture land or rice fields, or or just non forest, you know, through fire. Um, and you you hope that it would be just like this one big bad some some company that we could go and protest against and and stop, um, but the reality is it's just people trying to live their lives, trying to feed their families, and trying to get through the day, um, and and so that's a harder issue to deal with because humans are entitled to to feed their families and and make it through the day, and so trying to find problems that that allow people to have more um, sort of capacity to to live life without having to destroy forest is is a, is a difficult thing to try to figure out. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge. So, I mean, it, you mentioned it's something that's difficult to figure out. What are you and others doing? What are the, the champions uh, working on to stem this tide, uh, which almost seems inevitable? Um, 
So uh, I, uh, there's a lot of great work. We've had, unfortunately, there was a coup in 2009 that really set back a lot of the conservation attempts. Um, there was a lot of uh, parks created, a lot of national parks and protected areas created. Um, but we learned those became paper parks after the political crisis. And as people needed food and they needed money, they, they went back to the forests. Um, so what, what we work on is in our area, in the areas that you were with me, we, fire is the biggest threat. You know, these are dry forests. They're deciduous. They're not all that different from deciduous forests in North America, but drier. So they, they go through long periods of, without rain. Um, and since fire is a massive threat, you can you can do things. You know, there's specific things you can do with fire. You can create fire breaks. You can do fire management education. Um, we we run patrols. So we do fire breaks in in tandem with patrols. So we have people on the ground try to have them six days a week, um, just making sure if they see a fire that they get the proper authorities to go put it out, or or the village themselves puts it out. Um, if they see illicit activity, they can they can sort of cope with that. Um, and that's our sort of boots on the ground approach. And then we're following that up with, in this area, we've kind of gotten a handle on the fires and most of it. Um, and so we're now starting to reforest a section. That's the next phase is to sort of bring back some of the forests we've recently lost. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, there's so many different elements which, which you've mentioned there. You know, you've got the cultural element, uh, which is simply people are trying to live and culturally they've got their norms when we were there you used to talk to me about the fatties or the taboo that people would have and how cattle was wealth and i mean it doesn't get more cultural than that you, you've really got to make people view their entire paradigm differently in in some respects yeah, it's true. And, and, and sometimes that's hard and, and sometimes it's impossible. Some of these um, uh, fatties or, or, or taboos are, are flexible. It's like anything culturally, you know, it's, it's flexible. It can change. They're, they're, they're adaptable. Um, but some are ingrained and you can liken it to like vehicles in North America. We've created such a car culture in, in North America that no matter what evidence against owning a car in terms of whether you know, not owning one and having a bike would be healthier or whether it's better for the environment. It doesn't matter how much information you give. People are still buying cars and they're still driving cars. Um, and so some things just are immovable in some ways or, or harder to move uh, culturally. And so one of our realizations that that cattle was so important to the group that we work with that we're not actually hindering them from from grazing their cattle. We're just trying to do it in a more manageable and responsible way. Right. Now, have you seen a positive response from the communities in terms of understanding that, you know, lemurs are endangered and, you know, they are at risk of going extinct? And even though they may sometimes or frequently be a food source for them, if they don't ease up, they'll be gone and uh, it won't matter for these people. Or is it um, every day is a struggle? You know, it's the, the three main communities we work with they're, they're, they've bought into the whole idea that lemurs are cool and um, and it wasn't it wasn't a hard sell so they were they were interested um, and they're the most of the community members are fully committed to to protecting lemurs um, in terms of like the extinction trying to explain extinction and stuff this this starts getting into time frames that a lot of these people just don't have the luxury of fathoming because they're worried about the next meal or their next crop and so the long-term effects of losing a species of lemur is in some ways irrelevant to them. Um, and so 
but but they know the immediate the immediate benefits is that our project is there. I, like they they know, and I, I I remind them that we can only find this funding because there are lemurs um, right. that have a chance, you know. And so if if they didn't have a chance, that we wouldn't be able to work there. The funders wouldn't fund it, um, even though people are important as well. But the money is in lemurs really right now. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Um, actually, um, it's a really good point. If you can share that, it seems like we'll get some traction now. You know, you, you talked early on about how you paid 50 bucks and you got the trip of a lifetime from your academic mentor. But at some point, I mean, here you are running an organization in Madagascar, which having been there, you know, is one of the least developed spots on the earth. Uh, I mean, the infrastructure is non-existent. While we were there, uh, we nearly witnessed a public execution, didn't witness it by choice and left the village before it happened. You had already, um, headed out a few days before, but it's, it's the wild west. So how does somebody still make that jump from being a student, maybe going along with a mentor to suddenly I'm running my own field programs? I remember you talking to me once about, uh, you know, your experiences in South America and how wild they were. You want to chat about that for a little bit? Yeah, so I did um, uh, both South America and Central America. So Guyana, that that was that that, that trip that we we're just mentioning with uh, Brian Keating, and yeah, it was it was incredible. It was just the middle of nowhere, Guyana, and and uh, and it was insane. Um, but then I, when I went up to Belize, which is actually um, a relatively developed country, um, that's where I got my real uh, my feet wet doing um, field work. Um, and I worked there with uh, Dr. Mary Pravalka from the UFC. She became my master supervisor. And I went there to do, uh, was it six different projects? I started off as a, a field school with myself and 17 women, which was exciting. And then <laughs> um, <laughs> where I met my wife, <laughs> my future wife. And then very, very exciting then. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I, I, so I was in Belize and I was doing things like, well, a hurricane had just come. So we were doing surveys of the watershed. So I'm canoeing, you know, 45 kilometers every other day down this, down this river with crocodiles and monkeys and, uh, and all sorts of stuff. We'd camp on the, on the sandbanks. And I remember one day we got to the sandbank and there was these two giant logs. And I was like, how did these trees get on here? There hasn't been a flood. <laughs> And I just couldn't fathom it. For some reason, the shape didn't register until the logs got up and ran into the, the river and were big enough. They created a wake that caused the canoe to sort of tip a bit. And they were just two big crocodiles. Oh, my gosh. Um, that, and that was where we slept. And normally we would bathe there. So that night we still slept there. But um, we, uh, we, didn't ha we didn't bathe that night in the water. Um, <laughs> oh. <coughs> The, the actually the most incredible thing is we would wake up to left um, jaguar footprints uh, around the tent wow. almost every single night um, they would come visit the tent just maybe having a sniff to see what was there wow. um, yeah and so then I did so that was that was a cool project that, that got me sort of into doing sort of because it was near our field site so it wasn't too remote and then my project for my master's I got a motorcycle and uh, a machete and a backpack and a, a pack I'll pack a pack raft. And I, I toured the whole country looking for monkeys and I'd ride my motorbike as far as I could into the bush. Then I would hike and then use my pack raft to somehow get back to my motorbike. Um, usually doing about five days, five day loops. And, uh, and I sometimes go alone, sometimes go with a guide, usually alone. Cause it was hard to convince someone to do that. 
And that's where I learned, because you're relatively safe in the sense that there's hospitals there and there's there's cell phone coverage mostly. And um, there weren't that many um, Guatemalan bandits, you know, only a few. <laughs> and so... <laughs> It was it was a neat ad- place. You could have a lot of adventure in what perceived to be. It felt a little bit more safe than somewhere like Madagascar would, because Madagascar is so foreign to us. Right. Um, yeah. So that's where I got a lot of my experience from. Was doing projects like that. Well, I mean, that's that's just amazing. It's a rank exploration, right? Like a lot of these areas you were going into. You said you drive the bike as far as you can, and then the road ends or the trail ends. And then what was the plan? I mean, what were your maps like? Were you using GPS? How did you navigate in terrain like that? I've I've navigated through jungles in races and beyond, and it's difficult. It's very difficult. Yeah, it's a real it – is, it is pain. So I had uh, – thankfully, this was not that long ago, so it was just at the beginnings of uh, Google Earth. Um, and then we had some satellite imagery. Um, and I'm a, I love maps and and, and companies is still and uh so i can use those maybe not as well as jim but uh um that's that's but, jim mandeli um he's been on every adventure science project uh, <laughs> to date um yeah he's uh he's a, a very experienced and uh, knowledgeable adventurer and so i would um and one of my best things i got was i bumped into the british military when i was near the border and they were doing exercises um, with the Belizean military dealing with these Guatemalan sort of, um, it's a long story, but they're just Guatemalans that come across the border <laughs> doing illicit activities. And they had like special like military maps that weren't available. So I, I already had all the government maps, but I got those maps. And once I had those maps, everything became much clearer in that country. Um, and I was able to get into a little bit more remote places because I could use um, the terrain, you know, because I'm from the mountains, so I knew how to navigate in amongst mountains. You know, I know where's the better places to go. I'm I'm not an expert in anything, but you know, just from years of spending and you know playing around in the Rockies. Um, so these maps were were vital, and and I would actually be on a trail. That was what blew my mind. Is everywhere these Guatemalans had been ahead of me, looking for um, shate leaves and looking for mahogany. Um, things like that. So I was actually often on, it's not really a trail. It's kind of like the trails that you and I were on in, in Madagascar, these sort of nothing game trails that, that someone had used once or twice, uh, in front of us. Um, right. it's like that. So I spent a lot of time following those things. And so GPSs, compasses, maps, um, and then a guide if I could get one. And accidentally interrupting crime on your way. A few times, but <laughs> one one time in particular that the I think we were both just as scared because he didn't expect to see me out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and so and he was a lot shorter than I was and I had a bigger machete. And um I tried to play it cool, but um I was I was I thought I was the more terrified of the two of us, but in retrospect I think the sight of me would have been a little bit odd in the middle of nowhere <laughs> from his perspective. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Yeah. I think I think the conversation went uh, bonus dias, and then uh, bonus dias. Just <laughs> past uh, two ships in the night, huh? Yeah, we 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 walked past, and I remember both of us looking back to see if what the other was going to do, and then quickly looking away, and then continuing on our on our on our walk. I don't know where he was going because I was I was in the middle of nowhere. Wow, that's incredible. 
so what are some of the things that you uh that you experienced out there research wise i mean you were you were looking to do uh population surveys or uh, find um rare species well i was yeah i was looking to see um the main goal was to see where howler monkeys were and why they were there why they were in certain parts of the country and not others um and i didn't you know unfortunately i didn't learn anything more than we already knew they like to be in places where the forest was good for howling monkeys and uh, so lots of fruiting trees um, um, sort of valleys near rivers Um, and uh, and there was a connection I found to potentially to to hurricanes something that we published later that that this species of howler monkey may prefer hurricane um, prone regions so that was really interesting and we did publish that um, I think last year um, and I was also trying to find there's this there's a rumor that capuchin monkeys, that's the organ grinder monkey um, that you often see in television, that they they exist in Belize. So I spent some time in the areas that had reports of seeing them. There was an old Smithsonian or uh, one of the natural history museum expeditions that had reported catching one there. But I think it was just a misidentified um, a specimen. Um, so I never found it. The mythical capuchin of Belize, I don't think it exists. Sounds like a future adventure science project, um, right? There, the other there is one neat spot in Belize that may be a hybrid zone between two different howler monkeys, and I saw what appeared to be a hybrid, um, and would fit with what we think biogeographically where the two species overlap, um, and that was near the Mexican border in the northwest, Mexican and Guatemalan border in the sort of northwest of the country. Very interesting. Well. Travis, I mean, I, I love the research you do. I love, um, you know, your sense of adventure out there. So let's spend a little bit of time chatting about adventure and uh, kind of where the background came after you were eight years old skateboarding and, and hanging out in trees. Um, <laughs> you know, a, a lot of people may not know that you have tons of experience uh, in cycle touring. What's what's the backstory there? How'd you get into it and how, how do you make money doing that? Yeah, the um, I, I fell into that like I do a lot of things. I was working at the Plain of Six Glaciers Tea House in the Canadian Rockies um, uh, for three seasons. And I, I got that job sort of like through a friend of a friend. Uh, they I interviewed for it, and they heard that I had wrestled a giant river otter in Guyana, which was a semi-half-truth. I had It was a, it was a tame river otter that was uh, – um, um, being re-released into the wild, but it was accustomed to people and it would wrestle with you. It was fun. So I got this job at the, the tea house <laughs> and, uh, and I would work there and I loved, I like people and I like chatting. So I would serve uh, tea and uh, scones and uh, chocolate cake. And um, I bumped into a bunch of people who are doing tours. And this is a company called Backroads that I work for now. And I asked him, I said, you know, how do you get a job like that? That's pretty cool. Um, can you can you do it as a summer job? Because it seemed like they all were um, like full-time employees year-round. And they said, no, no, you can do it in the summer. So I, I applied. And because they knew me from the tea house for three years, I eventually in the third year was the manager of the tea house. And so they knew me well. Um, I basically just got the job pretty much from that experience. They knew if I could handle the, you know, living up in the mountains and serving tea to grumpy people who've just hiked too far. <laughs> Uh, that I could handle riding a bike and doing the same thing. Um, and so I started in the Canadian Rockies. And because I had experience in Belize, I was leading in Belize that winter. Uh, I also did Prince Edward Island that same year. And then 
Um, they needed someone in Costa Rica, and I, I knew about seven words of Spanish, so I said, I'll, I'll, I'll happily do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, that's how it started. And then I continued on to become sort of the, the main person doing the Southern, Southern Africa trips because I was living in Madagascar at the time. Um, so I actually just got back last week from South Africa, leading, um, leading a tour there of a group doing some mountain bike safaris. That's so awesome. Cool. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things we like to ask uh, the folks that we interview and chat with on this podcast is about their personal mantras. And do you have one? What is it? And how has it helped you if you have one? Yeah, you know, I, um, I guess I do. The, I, I don't know if it's a mantra, but it's, it's just kind of a, a you know, it's like I was saying, like everyone puts their pants on one leg at a time. And I, and I always believe that. I always believe that people are just people and that if someone else could do it, you know, barring a few genetic differences and, and some, some basic capabilities, I could do it too. And so I would see people climbing mountains. And I was like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And so that was always my mantra when I would, um, or I guess the, the thing I would think about whenever I attempt anything, uh, whether that was going to do a PhD or going to do um, research in Belize or, or start a nonprofit is that other people have started these things and other people have gone. Um, I've rarely been the first to try anything. And so that's, that's always been my motivation. I, I realize that I'm not necessarily as fast or strong as them, but I could probably do it just slower or weaker. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that's really inspiring and really true. And I know for many of our listeners, you're probably thinking everything you currently do and have done um, is so cool. You know, hopefully that'll inspire some people to get started uh, chasing their own dreams. Yeah, no, I, I, I hope so. That'd be great because the and it's a simple thing comes down to just doing it. I have so many friends that that complain and and. Uh, Say, oh, my life's tough, and I don't like what I'm doing, and I, don't, I hate it. And I'm like, change it. Just yeah. You know, there's no time like the present to just do something about it. Right. Yeah. One thing Simon talks about is listening to that inner voice. I think so often we can talk ourselves out of things, kind of logic our way out. Like, oh, it's not a good idea. Or I can't because of X, Y, and Z. And you know, I, we would just take action more. I think um, a lot more. Yeah, would be I done. think. That I think that's true. I, and, um, I noticed that a lot, you know, the, it's always easy to find an excuse. Right. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's the easy path. You know, it's, it's a little bit harder to, to, to jump in, but once you jumped in, you realize it wasn't actually that hard to jump in. Um, it required hard work, et cetera, later on, but to, to just get off, get off your duff and go do something you could, uh, that's not, that's not hard once you've done it once. Right. Oh yeah, it's bang on. I've, uh, you know, I've got a mantra that's about something called activation energy. And do you remember what activation energy is from chemistry class? No, my, I'm I was bad in school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bad enough to get a doctorate. But anyways, uh, activation energy is basically this this little packet, well, big packet of energy that's required to start a chemical reaction, and it's a big energy boost compared to what's required to maintain it so you got to put a lot of energy in to get the reaction started once it's rolling it hardly requires any energy to keep the reaction maintained it's 
exactly like you described, getting off your duff. That's where the energy comes in. So I used to always think about it when it was raining outside or I didn't want to lace up the runners and go out and put in my training miles to, to build the fitness. You know, it was just, okay, Simon, you've been here many times before. Just get yourself outside and you're not going to turn around until your workout's done. And when you finally come home, you're going to be happy you did it. Yeah, I, I experienced that. I think it was yesterday. I was like, uh, I don't know. I'm tired. I think I was on a couch too. So it was like a perfect <laughs> image. Perfect. And I, and I was like, fine, I'll go ride my bike. I wanted to get a bunch of kilometers in. And then, yeah, ten, I think 10 seconds into the ride, I was singing because I was so right. happy. <laughs> you always feel so much better when you're out there. Yeah. Yeah, I got to go more. I've been tied a lot to a computer all these uh, PhD years. That's why I do this cycle tours as well, is to sort of get me an opportunity to be out in the bush and to, to, to not be sitting in front of a screen running statistics. Yeah. Well, let's, let's keep it going with adventures here. Um, give, me a, give me an adventure story that would fall into the most challenging adventure category. Um, besides your and I adventure? <laughs> Well, I mean, you you can gloss that one over briefly. If you've got another one that rivals that, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> well, listen, I'm pretty jealous of this expedition, so I think we should definitely talk about it. It was It's the hardest thing I've had to do in an expedition. You know, I've, I've encountered a lot of crazy and amazing and difficult things, but this was, um, yeah, this took it to a different level, I think. We, um, we were going to the Singhi, which um, I don't know if you've talked about any of your podcasts before, but the, uh, it's... You know, it's was it defined it's where where you cannot walk barefoot, which is uh, that's right. Which a nice way of saying it's where no one can walk with anything. <laughs> a limestone labyrinth. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's this uh, you know this old coral reef that's uh, been eroded in a crazy way, and uh, this limestone formation. Um, and yeah, because you got me into going there and it wasn't, it was always on my radar to go do it, but it was your idea to go check this out. And I came as, I guess, your lemur guy and your on the ground Madagascar guy. And when you, me and Jim went to do our, our recon to go see if we could find routes that we could take the rest of the team in with a, with relatively little difficulty, um, we, we ended up going. We end up going into the Singhi and they're like, it's like walking on a glacier with all these cracks, but it's, it's limestone. And we, you know, as you know, we didn't have, we didn't have a sense of how, how rough it really was. Cause there's no imagery of the area cause it's covered in forest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we try to no cross. Maps. What, no good maps. Yeah. Was it five kilometers? I think we we're trying to do. And what five kilometers is like 45 minutes of, uh, walking fast. <laughs> yeah on a nice yeah. trail yeah yeah pure bushwhacking was, i think we were doing i think it took us four hours to do a kilometer i think is what we had or something like that and you um jim and i made a decision that we would turn back after a certain number of minutes and we we went and we kind of realized that we pushed that we didn't really make it a hard time we kind of just loosely talked about it and um yeah, we're kind of over by a few minutes and we realized that walking back would be hard. We might not be able to find the same route we took in, couldn't use our GPS reliably. Uh, there was no good maps, as you say. So we made the decision to, we were closer to the other side than we were to where we came from. So we decided to push forward. Um, and and the sun was going to be setting too. That was uh, that was a big that part was, of it. 
Yeah, that's right. We couldn't. The reason the timing was problematic because we couldn't get back while it was still light, um, and walking during the day was hard enough. Because oh, it's hard to describe. It's like you're walking on knives, um, in a, wow. a glacier of knives, and uh, and so we went forward. And then the the thing that really got us in trouble, I think, is that we were walking, you know, almost knee deep in water in the beginning, and not fully appreciating that the drainage was flowing towards us, and that yeah. we we there was no water on the other side, and that's where we got a little sticky. Um, <laughs> more like dusty <laughs> dusty sweaty we we did what lemurs did we licked the dew off uh off the leaves we uh we even found some holes in the trees uh that yeah. uh, we used our our camelback uh to siphon out some some water um we opened up bamboo only to realize that it was just a mouthful and the amount of effort it took to get the water out was worthless um <laughs> Then you found you found that uh, puddle of of hell water. <laughs> Pretty much, uh, I don't know, hundred liters of cow piss and tadpoles. Yeah, that was that was the most disgusting <laughs> water that I had ever smelled. Um, and we drank it. We happily drank it. That's the other thing. We 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 enjoyed it um, <laughs> because we were so desperate. It was forty two degrees Celsius out. Yeah, wow. it was incredibly hot. Yeah, been out of water more or less at that point, 12 plus hours. Um, I think you were already starting to ration food for us. We were, we had eaten all of our regular food. So Travis had brought peanuts. I think Jim and I were going with the standard adventure racing bars. Hopefully and... unsalted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Travis literally, he'd say, okay, guys, here's your food. You put your palm out. You get about two or three whole peanuts, and that was your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Wow. But, you know, that's incredible. I mean, it does give a little uh, taste and, and definitely makes you respect what wild animals go through every single day, right? I mean, they don't have houses with running water, obviously, but it's just not something you, you think about very yeah. often. And you guys found yourselves in a situation that uh, – Wild animals are in their entire lives. Struggle to survive. Right. Yeah, and, that, and there are, there are, we saw lemurs that we didn't care anymore, but we saw lemurs <laughs> and we saw, <laughs> we saw a fanaluca, which is a really rare type of uh, predator in Madagascar. Um, we saw, yeah, we saw pretty cool things. And they, they were, they were navigating this landscape and they live there and they survive it. And here we were, you know, like ducks out of water trying to right. figure out how to survive. Right. Um, but we did, you know, because we, we ended up losing our trail. Um, we knew where we were. We could actually see the town. You can see it in the distance where we were supposed to be. It was only, I guess, as the crow flies, about eight Ks away. Um, and we were only about four and a half kilometers to our camp um, or something. But it was four and a half kilometers through through a limestone labyrinth. You know, it was uh, the devil. What George called it the devil's obstacle course, George Karunas. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we made that decision to, instead of risking the long walk back, because there was a known trail further, what, south, I guess? That's right, south. We uh, we decided to to use our evac insurance, of which I did not have. <laughs> and, oh, uh, that's right. And because I knew, because my wife had been in a situation in Madagascar, and I was like, no one's coming. There's no, there's no, there's no helicopter here. And and there ended up not being one. We had to we had to have um, 
the evac guys, they failed in their ability to get us. We had to use yeah. the Canadian government. They, they're the ones who ended up doing the final... Um, they didn't do the rescue, but they got the, the Madagascar military involved. Well, that's actually... That brings up a really good point about exploration. And, you know, just the sometimes false sense of security that we have. I mean, bottom line, as a group, we made some critical errors that, that put us in jeopardy and uh, we got lucky. We got really lucky that the government was able to step up and uh, pull some diplomatic strings to motivate the, the Malagasy military to come and get us. But we each paid, uh, at least Jim and I, money for evacuation insurance and we're basically told yeah we've got helicopters in madagascar and when we called in they said okay we we deem you a search and rescue issue not a critical emergency therefore you actually have to pay cash to get rescued and it really changes the situation when you could be on the hook for 15 to 20 grand and you know you're like well maybe we should push back but you know, we, we made the right call. I'm sure of that. It's just, um, it's very important to understand that there's things that you're not going to understand. There's a lot that's going to be out of your control when you push hard and you really need to accept the, the risk. And, but you also face, you don't know what you don't know. So it's very hard to get it right in environments like this, especially when you're going very lean. Uh, you've got a compressed time frame and you don't have all the dollars in the world to, to play with for a massive expedition. Well, and I mean, Matt, this area in Madagascar, uh, the, the Singhi is one of the last unexplored places on earth. So I can imagine that would really complicate a rescue as well. I mean, how many rescues are being done out of this labyrinth? Probably not many. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Yeah. No. And the, and the parts that have been sort of uh, explored, you know, have been accessible. They were accessible. They were relatively accessible. And we were trying to do an inaccessible place for, for the very reason that we wanted to access places that people don't go and to explore new parts of this, this area. And yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think we actually, I think the only one critical error we made was that we should have turned around half an hour earlier than, than when we decided to push forward. But other than that, you know, we, we made the right decisions of stopping when we stopped calling it in when we called in. Cause I think the people that don't call it in are the people that you hear about in the news, um, where one, one doesn't make it or something, you know, there was a time I, I was, I was the roughest out of the bunch until Jim started getting a little bit ill from that, from the, from the tablets. Um, yeah. but like you guys are pretty tough. So I was barely clinging on. There's times I had you guys hold my hand to help me across some of the places. Wow. Um, so I was I was very happy to not have to uh, to fly out of there. <laughs> and who knows what would have happened if we would have taken me across back through that singi. You know, as you start getting weak and you make one bad step, um, you could fall 20 meters down one of those cracks of, of knives, you know, razor sharp knives pointing back at you. That's right. Wow. And you know, it, it's. It really takes a shot at your pride and uh, at your ego. I mean, it was a difficult decision that we had to make to to call in rescue and say, you know, we're in trouble here. Um, but like you said, it was it was the right move to make, and I think that was proven out by the fact that the expedition turned out to be so successful. 
we found dinosaur tracks. We found, well, heck, you found that archaeological site with Tyler. We found the third largest cave in the park. And we managed to do all the uh, lemur surveys that um, we had planned to do. So by any measure, it was an incredibly successful expedition. Had we listened to ego, perhaps, instead of reason, um, we might have got ourselves in a far worse situation than we were in when we got airlifted out and might have failed on all counts. Plus, there were a lot of other people relying on us. So, you know, I think that's a really good takeaway that you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them, know when to walk away. And when there's other people <laughs> relying on you, you fold them earlier. Uh, Will Gad, who is, you know, you probably know of Will Gad. He's one of the, yeah, of course. the premier uh, mixed and ice climbers in the world, paraglider. His his advice to us before we did the Rundle Traverse a couple of years ago in the winter was bail early, bail often. That's why he's still alive when many other people are not. And uh, now hearing that after this Mal- Malagasy expedition, I certainly take that advice to heart. Yeah, I've heard him say that. Um, uh, uh, must have been a magazine article or a book or something. Because um, I, I, I always, uh, I had his father's book, the uh, Ben Gad's uh, Bible of the Rockies. That uh, I still have it in my house here. It's probably behind me. Oh, it is um, the Bible. Yeah, and it's, uh, he, yeah, that, that's that's what you got to do. I think he, his advice is the people that tell these stories are the people that walked away as much as they as they made it. Yeah, exactly. Well, Travis, you have done so many awesome things. What is up next for you? What's your next adventure? Um, well, I'll be doing some more of these bike tours. So that's the that's kind of just my job. So I'll be doing that, and then uh, continuing with Planet Madagascar. We've got this funding to to plant forty five thousand trees over the next two years. Wow! Um, so that's going to be fun. Um, and I think what I want to do is I want to do some some biking expeditions in Madagascar. And I think I'm going to do a little pilot expedition where um, this is something I've just been I've been vocalizing a bit and I've been um, I just sort of hammering down exactly what's going to be. But I think the idea is that I'm going to I'm going to cycle the entire perimeter of the national park that I'm that I'm in. Um, it's Anker Fons National Park. It's about 1300 square kilometers. I don't know what the perimeter is. Um and the, what I want to do is I want to go um, and cycle the whole thing around the outside of it and meet all the people in the communities that live on the edge of this park. And I want to hear their story of where the forest was in their memory. Um, and then I want to share with them, because we have these uh, satellite imagery going back to 1984, and show them and, and my memory of where the forest was when I first got there. And I want to, I want to compare that, their memory to what my memory was, and also what we see in the satellite imagery. It's amazing. We, I think that would be a lot of fun. So that's the, I'm just developing this in my brain over the last uh, few months. I love that idea, Travis. Uh, man, you just, it just makes me happy chatting with you. I love your enthusiasm. I love your, your can-do attitude and how you just get after it. Um, really, really impressed by everything that you've, you've done. Uh, that, that just sounds fantastic. So, yeah, you, should, you guys should come join me. Hey, you keep me posted. You know I'm always up for uh, an adventure that's got a scientific uh, angle. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, don't invite unless you mean it because I will be there. Good, good. Um, so before we wrap up, I have to ask a little bit more about the lemurs. So when I was little, uh, they were one of my favorite animals. My favorite stuffed animal was a lemur. And I, of course, only saw them in zoos. 
But can you just tell us a little more about them, their personalities? Are they as funny and mischievous as they look? Yeah, so there's being a hundred species, there's a whole variety of them. So they go from tiny mouse sized lemurs, called mouse lemurs. Um, uh, they're 40 to 100 grams, about the size of an egg, all the way to the injury, which is uh, like 15 kilos, I think, maximum. Um, and the word lemur means spirits of the dead because of the, the cries that they make, the sounds that come out of their mouth. And, and Simon will remember some of the nights, some of the things that erupted from that forest is incredible mm-hmm. um and they're the the thing about lemurs they're actually not the brightest of all the primates and uh <laughs> lemur people hate when you when you talk about how stupid lemurs are it's not that they're stupid they're just they just don't need to be smart um they're they're pretty and they uh they can jump far and they they don't have a lot of predators and there haven't been people around long enough uh, in their areas um and so they often would do silly things. One of the silliest things that I saw was the, the, the species we studied was Zabumafu. If you ever saw Zabumafu, it's a, it's a type of shafaka. Um, there was a TV show, Kids Watched. And um, they can make like 8 to 10 meter leaps from tree to tree, which is astonishing. It's the furthest jumping animal um, or, or a, a, a lemur is one, one of the other lemurs. And... This one, this one would jump, and there's a cyclone had just come through the area, so the trees were knocked down in, in some, not many, but just a few. And they can only land and jump from certain trees. It has to have a certain thickness to it. And so the first one jumps, because they take these pathways, and and, uh, and it's the same pathway. So he jumps in this pathway. It's an arboreal pathway. And he goes to grab the tree, and it's not there. And he hits the ground. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know that, that moment where you're like, oh, that looked like it hurt. So are you the guy that laughs when they fall or do you feel bad? Which group are you in? I'm a little bit. I feel bad while laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but the first time it's more like, ooh. But then the second one jumps and yeah, nothing. Boom, hits the first one. Same thing. Now I'm starting to actually laugh. Um, (laughs) the third one the same thing because they're just it's like when you walk through your house at night you can navigate without turning the lights on for the most part but if someone moves a couch you're going to stub your toe Um, it's the same phenomenon they're just used to walking their pathway right? and and it took four of them before they figured out the tree was gone and (laughs) you could see the last one just sitting there like not knowing what to do looking side to side looking down um, and so that was, it was really adorable. Um, one, one other story about the same species was my wife would have, uh, would have lunch with us. She would spend the whole day, 14 hours a day with them, um, for six days a week. And it gets really hot in the dry season and she would, she would have her lunch and they would often come down at the same time and they would just sit with her, like, like immediately beside her to be eight to 11, um, fairly large lemurs. And they would just chill out. Well, and she always called it her little lemur picnic. I hope um, you guys have some pictures of this framed in your house because that's amazing. <laughs> it was, yeah. There was. I never got to experience it. Only one time did they come and sit with us, um, <laughs> sort of during the day. But we'd often wake up and we'd open our tent, and there'd be lemurs on our uh, on our little plapa tent platform. Um, they're very, very um, relaxed around people unless they've been hunted. Um, the areas that we that Simon and I went, they were hunted, so they weren't terribly relaxed. But even still, we found them. Like, it's not easy to find wild animals, and we were able to still find lemurs. Right. Because they're relatively easy to find. Um, 
yeah, they're they're pretty cool. They're they're lots of different behaviors. They're they can be clever, they can be mischievous, but every now and then they can be a little dumb. <laughs> well, can't we all though? Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. So Travis, one last question. What would you what advice would you give a young Travis, someone that is interested in something uh adventurous and something in the field of exploration? Um but maybe doesn't really quite know how to make their dreams happen. Um, I would I would probably give the advice that I used to have, but I would temper it a bit. I used to have a saying, and I don't know where I got it. Um, uh, money's just paper with a queen on it, and so you, it doesn't matter. And and so if it's going to cost ten thousand to do that expedition when you're eighteen years old, you just have to work really hard and find that money and go. Um, I used that advice a lot when I was younger, and I would say that to most. A lot of students ask me how they get into do what I do, and I say to them, it costs money. It takes time and effort and money, and you have to somehow feed yourself while you're doing this stuff. And so I took on a lot of debt early on to try to do this. So I would I would still recommend that, but not as much debt as I took on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would I would call it at some point and find another pathway, which is what I did later with the cycling tours. I realized I could make money and go to places, um, but I needed the experience I'd gotten getting there. Um, so I almost couldn't have changed it. But that, that's what I would suggest: is that you know work hard, get off your butt, and and just do it, and don't let money stop you. There's there's ways of making money. You know, I I worked as a landscaper for 12 to 14 hours a day, six days a week to pay for that first trip to Guyana. It sucked, but, uh, Guyana was amazing. Yeah. It's all about sacrifice, right? If you want it bad enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Travis, thanks so much. Uh, you know, like I said before, I love chatting with you and it's been great to, uh, to hear some of these stories and uh, really inspiring. I mean, it just you're getting after what you love to do and you're, you're doing it in a way that involves adventure and exploration and you're making a difference. And, you know, that's that's very commendable. Um, but, uh, yeah, thanks so much for, for joining us tonight. It was a, a real treat. Well, thank yeah, thank you. It's it, it means a lot coming from you you guys because you guys inspire me. So they uh, so it's it comes full circle. Wow, thanks, Travis. Wonderful talking to you. Cheers, thank you. Well, thank you again for listening to the Adventure Science Podcast. We hope you enjoyed uh, this episode with Dr. Travis Steffens. I know uh, we both loved it. If you'd like to learn more about adventure science, visit us at www.adventurescience.com. I would like to thank Olivier Hubert-Benoit for the audio mixing and editing involved in this podcast. He is an indispensable part of what we do. I'd also like to thank the Adventure Science sponsors who make this podcast possible. Merrill, Sunto, Farm to Feet, Stoke Dotes, Canada Satellite, Earthcast, and Smith Optics. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time.